Coming up on this week's show, a rare Atari prototype is now playable. How to build your own CRT portable console. And we speak Sega, Simpsons and Ghostbusters with John Melcher. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, their latest book you need to check out, The King of Fighters, The Ultimate History, detailing one of the most important fighting game series of all time and officially endorsed and with the help of SNK. So you want to check that out and the rest of their retro gaming books, you'll find it right now at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay, who offer a fully-featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast-turnaround-quality boards, and they do features such as 3D printing and injection moulding, and they're massive supporters of the retro community. Get an instant quote right now for your project at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 330, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Robbie Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our favourite time of the week, just before the weekend, a brand new episode of the show, every Friday, where we take you on a journey inside the world of retro gaming, bring you up to speed on all the stories that you need to know about from over the last seven days. And of course, the main reason that we do this show is to get the stories from the people who made the games themselves back in the day. And my word, have we got an incredible guest this week. Now, guest this week, actually, John Melcher, he's worked on not only some of the biggest video game franchises, but entertainment franchises, sort of like The Simpsons, Ghostbusters, and lots more as well. Yeah, man, this was such a good interview. Um, he's he's done so much over the years, and he actually started at uh, Sega of America in the early '90s as a as a quality assurance tester, a QA tester, which I love because of we've had quite a few people now who have kind of started in that kind of QA role, and then they kind of learn how to make the games or you know learn about the industry. And he kind of went into an assistant, you know, producer role, and then he moved on to a producer's role, and then became like an executive producer. And he worked on so many games, and Ravi has done such a good job of getting a hold of him because you've been speaking to him on and off for a couple of years now, and you know he's he's been really like, oh, I'm really too busy, kind of thing. But he's always been great at like replying and saying, you know, what about next month? What about this month? And we finally locked him down, and you know. Some people might be thinking, oh, God, this interview is not that retro because, you know, it's kind of half the early days with him at Sega and EA. And then we kind of speak a lot about, you know, Simpsons Road Rage and Simpsons Hit and Run. And I couldn't resist because of they are some of my favourite games, part of one of my favourite franchises. And, you know, those are the games I grew up with. So I really kind of had to go for it with this one. And, you know, Ravi was asking him all about Ghostbusters and stuff, you know, which once again, a little bit on the newer side for the retro hour, but it was such... An amazing story to kind of hear about like how he worked with Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and you know Howard Ramis and uh uh what's Winston's name Dan don't tell me what's his name Ernie, Ernie Hudson, Hudson Ernie Hudson come on. like call yourself a Ghostbusters it was, fan it was so amazing to kind of like talk about you know the production of those games and you know how involved he was and essentially you know how he was directing like the uh the voice actors in these games and stuff and stories about Matt Groening from The Simpsons. It was it was really, really amazing. So quite a long one, but, you know, absolutely top work from Ravi there as well, getting him on. You know, you mentioned then that Hit and Run, you didn't think it was that retro. It came out in 2003. So that's 19 yeah, years 19, ago. Yeah, I guess, you okay, know, what's, okay. that, that, that is retro. It's pretty now, retro. Like. Like, it's pretty retro. And Road Rage <laughs> came before that. So it's getting yeah. pretty retro, but yeah, well, really, really top. Interview. For me, it was like, 
Simpsons games before that, I know you're a fan of Mark Bart versus the Space Mutants and stuff like that and the arcade ones, but mm. they were the rarities in a in a pile of poop and um, Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> um Simpsons Road Rage and Hit and Run when it hit it, it really recreated Springfield for me. And mm. it had that kind of vibe. So it's it's awesome to talk to John about it. And you know, he's he's got such a good eye for this and, and the kind of brands, especially like going into Ghostbusters and some of the later stuff that he's done. But he also started on some really interesting titles and it really is that story of coming from QA, going yeah. into producer and the kind yeah. of changes in tech and uh, just what what that enabled. But of course we went totally fanboy on the Simpsons stuff. And uh, yeah. yeah, there's there's some really exciting stuff in this interview. I think it's uh, going to be one that you're all going to really enjoy. You know, hit and run as well. I mean, what a game. It's kind of like the Simpsons, but, you know, GTA style, isn't it? pretty much and we actually ask him about that you know did you yeah. know was the kind of the brief for road rage to be crazy taxi and was the brief for you know hit and run to be gta and it, it wasn't quite as it seemed it was there's actually a really interesting story behind it about how the studio kind of they did road rage and then they were like we want to get out of the car you yeah. know and we but wanna... they turned it platformy didn't they, they yeah not like gta it wasn't going yeah, to yeah. ammunition <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was blown away chief sections yeah but yeah, it was um, it it was really interesting to kind of get that backstory and kind of talk about the reboots, you know, the potential kind of reboots and his thoughts on it, and you know, kind of it was very open about like the, mm. you know the kind of the money sides of it and stuff like that, which I thought was really nice. So really, really, really exciting stuff. And even going into the 2009 Ghostbusters game, which um, and that might be pushing the boundaries of retro, admittedly, but the thing is, Ghostbusters. It's a retro franchise. Yeah. Dan, you know, you've missed and, a gem here. You know, you're, you're, you're Mr. Resident Ghostbusters. And, uh, you know, and to me, you know, someone who I, I loved Afterlife, you know, the latest Ghostbusters movie, hype for the next one as well. But I think for me, Ghostbusters 2009, that was kind of the last time, obviously, before Harold Ramis mm. passed away. Mm. To a lot of fans, that was like kind of the, the real Ghostbusters 3. Wow. So, not, not to spoil it. He said it was like Dan Aykroyd kept on calling it Ghostbusters 3. Yeah. And he said there was a point where him, Harold Ramis and, you know, and John were all on the phone and they were they were talking about it like this is Ghostbusters 3 and it was called Ghostbusters 3. And he was like going back to the studio and it was like, we've got to call it Ghostbusters 3. But, the gold, but, but they, they couldn't. <laughs> I'm giving all the way to gold here, but like there's so much. That's just the tip of the iceberg, honestly. Like, mm. The way they got Bill Murray, because obviously Bill Murray's so like elusive. Like, yeah. it, it's just, it's a really fantastic story. So uh, really hyped for this one. And uh, you guys did this. I'm looking forward to listening to this one. John Melcher, our special guest, he'll be on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, a very in-depth interview. So let's quickly get through this week's news stories. because lots going on as well, including a pretty major Atari leak. Now, this is not something we see that often because obviously a lot of these games now are, you know, knocking on 40 years. But obviously one of um, Atari's best arcade games, Marble Madness. Now, I played that game on the Amiga, the home version of it. Really enjoyed it as well. I played it on on the arcade too. And I know that Marble Madness 2 was kind of a, a holy grail among retro enthusiasts and particularly Atari collectors because this one never actually made it to market. But now there is a ROM that's been dumped for everyone to play. It's, it's pretty amazing. This is the uh, prototype version that's uh, been dumped. And uh, Dan, did you play that with the tracker ball when you originally played it, or were you a mouse mouse noob? Oh. I think on the Amiga, I, on the Amiga, I used a mouse, but I have played it on arcade on tracker ball. I must admit, even though I like the game and I enjoy the physics 
of Marble Madness. I don't generally get very far in it. It is a tough game. For me, it was the music, the graphics, yeah. the atmosphere of it. You know, it was it is it's therapeutic Marble Madness to actually play. You know, it's, it is it's got that vibe, and that's why this second version is so interesting because it doesn't look therapeutic at all. Um, it looks like they've added loads of absolutely insane elements in here that make it look more stressful than well, <laughs> the music's still good though funny, funny you should say that one of my earliest ever memories is my brother renting marble madness for the sega mega drive and me right. getting upset because it was so difficult that my dad took it back and rented his tailspin instead which coincidentally is a really hard game for the mega drive as well but that wasn't your weekend was it, it wasn't my weekend but as ravi said this looks insanely difficult there's like little bucket enemies and little spinning top enemies like just all over the shop like little like bouncing things that like shock you and send you flying it looks really hard but it looks like, like pinball-y a bit doesn't it you know yeah, it it's does. got that yeah. kind of pinball vibe yeah well there, there is even a level where you're on a pinball table um it looks really tough but what what's the story here is it so from what i understand essentially the game went out to some testers but then mm. obviously it never got released and essentially the rumor is that this has actually come from one of the test carts that's been dumped yeah they uh that kind of atari reportedly blamed it for the uh trackball controls saying oh mm. that was bad and then they redid the control scheme and then kind of uh replaced a trackball with a joystick and an accelerator mm. Button, but that didn't go down well as well. So I couldn't imagine playing Marble Madness with a no, you know, and and I think it was just they're trying to do too much with it here. Like, yeah, you look at the, the the Marble Madness; it was like such a pioneering title, and now you look on YouTube and those videos of kids rolling marbles around yeah. the whole thing. Maybe they could have gone down like a Micro Machines route where it was like in a house or it was some kind of like level like that, but um. It just seems to be completely wacky. And uh, Jason Scott uh, with the Internet Archive got a great quote here. And, uh, yeah, he's just talking about how, you know, how wild it was and uh, what what a beautiful game it was. And uh, the sequel kind of completely forgets why the original was great, which is, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty fair comment, to be honest. You know, it kind of reminds me of, because, I mean, this, um, this second version of the game, was meant to be released in the early 90s. Um, the original Marble Madness was, I think, 84, which, you know, there was kind of a, a time when, you know, the kind of 16-bit technology was obviously the main platforms, you know, particularly in arcade hardware. Um, there was a time when they tried to soup up and really do, like, turbocharged versions of these old arcade games from, like, a decade before. Like, you know, they did it with Pac-Man, didn't they, when Pac-Mania came out? It did seem to be a bit of a trend for a while that they kind of do these like crazy sequels. Um, I actually think it looks all right. I know Jason Scott's saying it's a really uninteresting game and he hopes that now that it's out there, people can kind of move on from it. But I, I agree, Ravi, it looks like they're trying to do a bit too much in it, but it does kind of have that, you know, kind of wild kind of early 90s atmosphere to it looking at the game. Yeah, and and like just the music is still like, oh, I kind of like get that, yeah. get that feeling that you're in the, the Marble Madness world. Um, it's, it, it looks like it's kind of taken off a arcade uh, real PCB as well. So that, that thing must be rare. And I can imagine people are going to now put this on their unit. So maybe if they've got like a jammer arcade or something with Marble Madness 1, they might put it in and, and try and give it a go. You know, we might get some Let's Plays on YouTube or something like that. 
Yes, I mean, you can play that on MAME now. Um, the ROM dump is available on archive.org. I mean, they don't mention kind of what state it's in. They say it's a second um, prototype version of it. It looks pretty complete from the video, though. So if you want to yeah, check again, that out on your... Yeah, again, it looks uh, like 3D Blast as well, this version. But then, yeah, so... <laughs> 3D Blast kind of ripped off that as well, yeah. Yeah, I think it does look fun, though. I mean, definitely something that, you know, not only a curiosity because it's kind of one of those lost games that everyone's talked about for decades, but um, it could be a bit of fun as well, I think. I've got a feeling I'll last about three seconds in this version of it. That's probably two seconds longer than me, though. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, if you want to get it on your main cab, um, I'll link that up, the link on archive.org in our show notes. One question. uh, Sorry, one question, guys. Did you find when you played that game, it was one of those games where when you're about to fall off the side, you're leaning to the side? It, it, you're physically your moving body, your body yeah, to oh, try yeah. to compensate for it <laughs> maybe maybe that's what i needed to do as a kid to to play better <laughs> lean into it yeah and not cry <laughs> it would have been good on kind of one of those uh, you know gaming chairs or like a joy board or something maybe playing it that way have someone's to hack it and have that idea on me now uh, you're always a fan of these ravi these kind of uh wildly expensive very bizarre beautifully made arcade machines now this one is going to set you back over four and a half thousand pounds um but i've got to say this is probably not meant for us a lot this is for those uh, really trendy bars that you see in certain parts of the world who want something a bit unique in there now this is a uh, mid-century they're calling this modern style arcade a tabletop unit made by capcade it looks cheap to me <laughs> it's, it's an expensive Does it look four and a half one, grand to me? But it looks like it came from Ikea or someone made it themselves. You know, it, it's. It, uh, it has got that Danish kind of like Swedish look about it, actually, now you say it. But it's just the fact that they call it mid century. Yeah. So this isn't even tabletop mounted or anything. It's wall mounted. So you'd have to have a, a dedicated area in your room or something that you actually mount this on the wall, which also makes me think. You're mounting something that's four thousand pounds on your wall that you're going to be slamming and bashing and stuff. You need to mount that pretty well. Um, it's 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 not designed for the kind of dives that us guys go to. Though, no, a beer would be spilled all over that, <laughs> yeah. and the, the lovely wood would be stained. Uh, I think they're using special wood here, which is African Arocco wood and a birch ply. Each piece is tailored to your requirements, apparently. Uh, handcrafted as well. Handcrafted, yeah. And they've got Ultimark retro sticks, which I've not really heard of before. But they've they've got a mister in their computer as well. Yeah. But um, the most disappointing thing for me is um, the, the, the CRT, well, LCD monitor. It is 4 by 3 ratio, but um, it's still LCD. And, like, I don't know. I'd, I'd expect a CRT for this price. I'm just, who's buying this? I, it looks like an art install, really, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, like you say, £4,750. Like, it's just mental. Like, I mean, it's, it, I want to say it's cool, but I think the Pandora box ones, yeah. which have got like all the artwork up the side and stuff, which I'm on Etsy now. People are selling for like 500 quid and 400 quid. And I think they look much cooler and really cash, like capture that 80s and 90s like look. You know, it'd be horrible like the artwork here, but the side. it looks a bit like a urinal or like <laughs> one of those metal ones that you get at a football ground. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just the, yeah. the way that it kind of bends around. But yeah. At £4,700, you don't want to make that mistake after a few pints. <laughs> what, what, what happened to your mid-century uh, arcade, Joe? Well, Dan came over and he was really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I'm not sure 
how many of these are going to sell. It's, it seems they're selling them in there's, ones. So they're they, I was going to say, it says, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it says there's only one available. So I'm assuming they, if you buy it, they hand make it and then they'll put another one for sale once it's done. Waiting for that first order probably right now. Oof. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've got to say, it doesn't look £4,700 worth of system, but um, I'm sure there will be somewhere with the, with the money too. I have that kind of thing hanging on the wall, you know, for a bit of a, a bit of accolade maybe. So if you want to have a look at the pictures, I think, that, I think that's enough for me, if I'm honest. I'll uh, put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, John Melcher, our special guest coming up very soon. Uh, all those stories about games like Simpsons Hit and Run, Ghostbusters, talking about those early days at Sega. And we've got another... Nintendo 64 prototype has been found. We'll talk about it in just a moment. It seems to be a bit of a trend right now, that. But also, just a quick reminder that, you know, the reason that we can bring you this podcast each and every Friday is thanks to our incredible community of patrons who make sure that we can pay all the bills, we can keep the lights on here at Retro Hour Towers and uh, bring you a new podcast each and every week. And, of course, we're not all take, take, take. We give back massively, I think, you know, compared to a lot of podcasts on Patreon. Oh, yeah. We've got loads of stuff. Like um, if you sign up, you get an ad-free episode. You also get the Retro Hour After Hours, which is an entirely different podcast where we're uh, kind of talking about like our own memories, uh, when we first experienced stuff. Recent episode was about the N64. And sometimes these episodes go on for two hours and you can get a whole feed. How many of them have we done now? 24 24 so if you if you do join patreon you will get 24 brand new episodes and that that's pretty awesome and uh you'll be sick to death of us after that <laughs> listening to all that and, and we have our google meets as well um which yeah. is just so nice like meeting up with uh all of the listeners and kind of having a big chat like a a big pub kind of sunday sit down and chat about stuff and uh, share stuff. It's really nice. And mostly, you know, you're supporting the show and you're keeping us independent. You've you've enabled us to buy all this equipment so we can do this from home and we can kind of do it in our own time and there's a lot less stress and we can actually produce it because running a podcast every single week is pretty mm. hardcore. And how many years have we done it now? Oh, I can't even half. remember. <laughs> Six and a half years now we've done Six this. and a half years yeah. every week. Wow. And we're, we're talking about, you know, events that we're going to be going to this summer as well. I mean, you know, it helps us um, get there and record panels, you know, in far-flung parts of the world. We're going to Norway and Germany. We're going to bring you back reports and uh, exclusive interviews from places like that too as well. So, I mean, having this money in Patreon just enables us to uh, just keep doing the show and bring you stuff like that as well. So um, we can't stress, without Patreon, the show wouldn't exist. You know, to put it bluntly, we couldn't afford to do it out of our own pocket. So if you'd like to back us on there, honestly, it's massively appreciated. You'll find all the details at theretrohour.com. Now, it seems to be we're talking about um, new N64 builds and leaked prototypes that are found pretty much every week at the moment. Um, Last week was a GameCube one. We talked about that Kirby one. This week, there is a game that was called um, Simcopter that did come out on the PC, didn't it, by Maxis back in the day. But there is now a playable build of the cancelled N64 version that's out there. It's, it's weird yeah. because there was sim sim stuff for absolutely everything. And uh, mm. I, I remember this kind of... So Simcopter was very, like, based on rescue and uh, stuff like that. But I remember there was this idea in SimCity, which was we want to go inside the city. We want to see what's going on in the city. And they tried to implement this with a Simcopter in the streets of SimCity as well. and. It's like the technology couldn't handle it. It was really glitchy, sketchy. Like the textures as you'd go in weren't amazingly good. That classic good. N64 fog. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like <laughs> yeah. They did it. They did it later on with Command and Conquer as well, where they wanted to go into the game. And this happens with a lot of kind of strategy games, uh, mm. where they're like, right, what you know, someone obviously is in a meeting and they go, what if we could go inside the city? Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's got that kind of vibe. But interesting to see that there was a N sixty four pop because uh, Sim City. You know, there's been a lot of lot of nintendo ports in the past actually and it's one of those titles that doesn't lend itself to uh going onto consoles yeah well interestingly footage of this game was put on youtube in 2015 but with kind of like no explanation so you know people have known it's existed for quite a while with you know footage and stuff but another one from e3 wasn't it another little glimpse yeah it was it a seems glim- to be glimpse- like a lot of them out there yeah glimpse from e3 but um What's actually happened now is a Reddit user has posted this. He's called A707 North Bayer. And essentially, he's got a hold of the physical build engine cartridge of it, you know, the nice tall N64 cartridge, you know, when it's, you know, the kind of looks like two N64 cartridges on top of each other. Apparently, he bought it in a private sale um, where he traded a load of Super Nintendo games with a, you know, a private seller who's not said where they got it from. Um, and then obviously he's kind of posted his footage and his pictures of the game running. Now I must admit this build, which is from the 26th of December, 1997, uh, apparently looks a lot nicer on the picture that he's posted than it did in the footage from E3. Um, oh. I think it looks a lot more complete and there's a, the mist, the draw distance with the N64 mist is a lot better. And there seems to be a lot more kind of going on on the street level of the game, like, you know, kind of like, you know, when you come down into the buildings and stuff, there seems to be more kind of happening in the streets and stuff, you know, like palm trees and stuff like that. He's not put the game out on ROM or anything like that yet for people to play, but he said that he's interested in making a backup of it to kind of, you know, preserve this slice of history so other people can play it as well. And then it's out there, isn't it? But it's always interesting when these games pop up, like, you know, I can only assume the person he's done a trade with you know, was a private collector who must yeah. have got it from probably one of the original, you know, developers of the game. And when the game got cancelled, just, well, rather than destroying it all, I'll take this home with me. It must have come through Maxis somewhere. And mm. that, like, there must have been a leak or it would have been like a, a beta version. And, like, it's an interesting game. Like, you, you, you're essentially a taxi service flying around mm. to different parts of the city and you've got to, like, chase speeders and stuff. But um, one function that really made it stand out was, like, the soundtrack. So yeah. it had like radio stations in there, like GTA style. Oh, really? Like oh, original rock, techno, jazz. So you could kind of listen to the helicopter radio and fly around. And I wonder if that would have been on the N64 version because of the the cartridge and stuff, um, as opposed to like CD. You know, that's pretty cool. It is interesting. So it reminds me a bit of Pilot Wings. Looking yeah, at it, kind of yeah. getting a vibe Pilot from Wings it. 64, yeah. Yeah, and there is, um, like you said, that Reddit user, his name is um, A707 North Bayer. Interestingly, since it's got picked up by Nintendo Life and other sites, he's actually now deleted the thread of Reddit. And um, the videos that he posted there have kind of all gone there. Now, I've been looking back through his history. There is a few links to um, kind of silent videos that he posted on Imgur. So you can check those out, you know, kind of see a bit of the gameplay. It does look legit. Um, and he's saying, I think the reason, I've got a feeling that the reason he's deleted the thread is from looking through the, through the history of it, he was getting hammered by so many people going, oh, give me a copy of it, I'll help you out, you know, <laughs> can you sell it to me? And I just think he got a bit fed up of everyone going on at him. Yeah. Um, but he did say he, he wants to sell it, he said. 
Oh, I've got he... a feeling he wants to. Yeah, he, he wants to sell it and earn money off it. By the sounds of it, he doesn't want to oh, give it okay. away. Fair but, it, but he said he is going to dump it though. He's looking at backing it up and releasing. Oh, okay. It so he's going to dump the ROM, but then he wants to sell the yeah, physical sell cartridge. the original. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's... So, but I just think he got a bit fed up because I mean that thread. It was like you know, there's a lot of comments on it, and it's <laughs> kind of been a bit of a holy grail, I think, for N64 collectors. You so, know, uh, it makes me want to play Simcopter again because there's so many of these other Sim titles that I've not explored properly and i've just like briefly yeah. seen and it's like actually you know yeah yeah so it does look an interesting title it just you know there seemed to be like sim everything during the 90s didn't there so that would uh, be a good one sim everything sim yeah sim everything. <laughs> all of them combined <laughs> um so yeah if you want to check out the, the footage of that i'll find the uh, the links to, to the uh, the videos that i found so far i'll put them in the show notes as well and there uh, hopefully that will be available for everyone to enjoy before long now, this looks pretty interesting. Now, we've, we've talked a lot on this show about people making their own kind of homebrew portable retro consoles. This one is a little bit different because it uses a CRT. Yeah, this is a really mad, really well thought out concept. And um, do you remember when you used to have video cameras like VHS cameras and uh, you'd have the viewfinder in the view? Uh, in the camera that you'd like put your eye against and you'd monochrome normally. Be, yeah. Sometimes monochrome, sometimes later on it was color. Well, that was a little CRT essentially, <laughs> uh, the viewfinder. So it's a, it's a source of CRTs that kind of haven't been used, you know, these old video cameras and, uh, it's, it's really quite a small CRT, <laughs> um, you know, you, you're just holding it up to your eye, but, and a lot of those were magnified as well, weren't they? It'd be like the size of your fingernail. Yeah. And then there'd be a little magnifying but, but But this seems to fit, like, amazingly well with the Pico 8. So um, this Pico 8 language we've covered before, and um, it, Pico 8's display is limited to 128 by 128 pixels. And <laughs> this, this guy has uh, managed to actually create a, a little device that's 3D printed. It's called the uh, OneFum Entertainment System. It's Raspberry Pi powered, and it's got this little CRT and only one button on it. And it kind of looks like a really thin, tiny uh, old camera, doesn't it? Yeah, with one button, literally. That's <laughs> so, it. so you kind of hold it. It's got a, like a hand strap. Imagine like an old, um, like I said, an SVHS or a Hi-Ec camera. You put your hand through, kind of wrap your palm around the console. You put the uh, the viewfinder up to your eye, and then there's a small red button near it that I guess yeah, it's going to be uh, only certain types of games are going to work with this. I was going to say you're not going to play Doom on this, but I'm sure some will port it. Yeah, to. there's probably a Pico 8 version of Doom, I bet you. <laughs> so yeah, it looks an interesting device. And again, it's just... Um, yeah, it's unique, isn't it? Yeah, nothing it, like this. It's I've ever kind seen of like you can you can get CRTs in loads of different places that you really didn't think about them. And you know, as the supply is getting limited, they're getting broken. Like PVMs, if you want to buy one of them nowadays, you're fighting all the retro geeks across the land. I'm sure you can pick up an old broken camera in a in a charity shop and kind of follow these guys' uh, like instructions, and then a. Uh, 3d print the case and then you've actually got this like really weird thing i don't know it it, it kind of looks a bit like a gun but then i think a lot of the old cameras kind of did you know with the whole shoot and point kind of thing and the lingo has always been very similar with cameras and uh guns but i wouldn't take this to an airport um 
anything like that. Like, what's he looking through? He's this weird viewfinder. Who's he aiming at? You know? It does look a bit like a military kind of tool. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Or like, you know, one of those things that they use in battle where they go, we're going to bomb here and it's like a laser range. <laughs> With a red button on <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like so. targeting someone, you know. You know, I always like projects like this where they kind of find uses for um, places that you wouldn't expect to go into video games. So like you said, I mean, the amount of cameras or camcorders that, you know, lying around in people's cupboards and that. So it's nice to kind of repurpose those parts into something usable again. I'm not sure quite kind of, I'm looking at this guide here, you know, if, if you've got a bit of electronics knowledge, it looks doable. Yeah, this isn't easy. Um, <laughs> no, no, but it's, uh, I just wonder what kind of games you're going to play in it. You know what I mean? It's uh, maybe something like Duck Hunt might work at it or something. I'm not sure, but just having that one button is obviously going to kind of limit it, I imagine. But um, it just kind of seems like one of those projects you do it just because you can. Yeah, or Doesn't maybe you can make a wall, like a tiny wall out of all these little CRTs. <laughs> you can have a, a full PVM. <laughs> a portable video wall yeah. that you can take anywhere with you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's very cool. If you want to check that out, I'll link that up. And everything else we talked about, you find all our stories in our show notes every week in your podcast app or at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, John Melcher, he's on the way in just a minute, talking about games like The Simpsons Hit and Run, Ghostbusters, and lots more as well. Let's take a moment to welcome on this week's sponsor, and it is a new sponsor for the Retro Hour podcast that we're very excited to have on board, and this is our mates at Shopify. Now, if you use Shopify, this sound will be like music to your ears, because that's the sound that you hear when... When you've made money, essentially, when you've made a sale on Shopify. And actually, I know you and I, Ravi, were very excited that Shopify come on board because, you know, in our various side hustles and businesses and companies that we've worked with, we've both used Shopify for quite a long time. Yeah, so I'm a web designer in my uh, kind of side hustle spare time. And a lot of my clients want like an all-in-one commerce platform. And I can't really provide that. So Shopify do it, but they do it for people without skills in design or they don't need to know anything about coding. It's a really nice platform and it's also scalable as well. So you can start mm. off small and then grow big. Yeah, and the thing is, um, they just take, like you said, all the hassle out of doing it. Because I've got a friend who's an author and he published his first couple of books recently. And again, like a lot of the people you work with, no web design skills. I mean, he can barely sign into a WordPress website, yeah. but Shopify just takes all the hassle out. I mean, it makes a payment simple, accepts all the major payment methods that you need as well. And what I really love about it is you've got this dashboard in there that gives you all the insights that you need to grow your business as well, where you can manage orders, shipping, payments, all of that from anywhere too. And I mean, for someone like you, if you're setting it up for someone else, the good news is they've got 24-7 support so they can help every step of the way. Yeah, that's awesome. And it really stops me kind of having to do it. And also, you know, you can start selling on Shopify for free, which is really good. Yeah. So actually, we'd love you to um, give Shopify a try for yourself and uh, take your business to the next level. And if you use our exclusive link so they know that we sent you, then of course, it's going to really help out the podcast as well. So sign up right now and get a free 14-day trial at shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. So that's all lowercase, shopify.co.uk slash retro hour right now to grow your business today. Shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. And a big thank you to our friends at Shopify for their support of our show. Right then, next, we've got a fantastic guest on the show for you this week, getting stories from those early days at Sega doing Q&A, and then into games like, you know, Simpsons Road Rage, Hit and Run, and Ghostbusters as well. What a guest. Our special guest, John Melcher, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we're here today with John Melcher. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Thanks for joining us. We always uh, start with one question, and this this will take you back. Um, it was, what was your first kind of video game experience, or the first time you ever saw a video game or an arcade? Well, I was a big uh, uh, dating myself arcade person uh, back in the early to mid mid eighties, and as I was going through the tweens into high school. I'd say the first uh, home system I had was the Atari 2600, uh, bought it new. Uh, and then the, the first real deep dive into gaming I did is the, uh, on the Commodore 64, if you remember that. I, yeah. um, that's where I really started to understand, like, oh, my God, these there are more than just uh, p- pixels moving across screen. These, these have narratives, they have stories, they have, they have deep systems or deeper systems at the time. But then I think... As far as the wonder of it all, uh, I went to a miniature golf course and I saw a dragon's uh, layer machine for the first time. Yeah, and that attract just the attract mode of the of, of the Bluth uh, animation and sound. I was hooked. I, I you know back then you used to put quarters on top of the arcade to line up who was next. Mm. And um, they they were uh, notorious machines because they'd always break as well. So was it was it operating uh, well when it, you had it? It was operating. I don't think I ever played it long enough for it to break. Um, because I, it's a, it's a game that is based on failure. So I would always <laughs> do the wrong direction and then end up as a skeleton. And then, uh, somebody who's much larger and much more, uh, physical than I is, would say move. Well, were you doing any like basic programming and stuff on the, uh, C64? No, I, you know, mostly stick to the creative and design stuff, but like I did, they had a tape recorder in what you learned, you know, they had a, how to make a game app or a program back then. And I did try to. Um, do enough to uh, make things move around, but I realized that was not smart enough for that. Um, <laughs> like, I could only go so far, but I, I had a vested interest from the Commodore 64 days of how games work and how they were built. Awesome. So I read online you kind of started your career as a quality assurance tester with Sega of America in the early 90s. How how did that come out? Was you know come about? Was it like a you know were you interested in making gaming kind of like your career, or did you just kind of fall into it? What's the story there? Both. I, I, I fell into it, uh, but I had an interest in, in making games and understanding games for a long mm. time. But I was working at my uh, father's video store and I think um, trying to figure out what was next. And my wife uh, knew somebody that worked at Sega. And, yeah. Uh, she said, that, this is a great opportunity, but she said, you are doing this because it's more of a career <laughs> than working at your father's store. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I started. She got me the job in the industry. She got me the job at Sega as the quality assurance uh, starting on a um, the night crew, which I think mm. started at like 3 p.m. to like 2 a.m. Um, and what was the culture like? What was that like? Was it, you know, was it kind of like burning the midnight oil or was it fun? It was a sweatshop a bit, but like, mm. so like the way Sega worked back then is 95% of the staff was um, on contract for like six yeah. months. And then the two, like, uh, percentage was full time. And you, everybody tries to work hard on their quality of bug count um, to do it. I think. The amount of products that went through both first and third party was massive. And the amount of testing hours that we put in was a lot, but I would say it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I connected with production a lot in some of the uh, engineers in Japan, but like the longer I was there, the more I started to work on their sports titles, their world series and title and their Joe Montana football title. And then there was a close group net of uh, sports fans uh, in the group, as you can know from quality assurance is probably, um, very few sports fans in there. There's a lot of like obviously gamers that like the fighting games and the adventure games. So we kind of got shifted to the back corner because nobody wanted to hear us cheer for ourselves when we played because we started playing rather than testing. <laughs> yeah. 
And like there was a one day where they're like, okay, you tie every game in the baseball game. And we got so competitive, we just couldn't do it. Like we, <laughs> you know, this true story is like, I'm from Cleveland originally. So I'm a big fan of all the Cleveland sports teams. And like mm. the, my coworker was also from Cleveland and our lead tester, our, uh, Todd Morgan was his name. He says, please play uh, with the Indians and make sure you tie every game. So we played a seven game series and we didn't even check you and it actually shipped with the Indians fell wrong. <laughs> and like he, I think it was Indians, and he That's couldn't brilliant. fathom the, how two guys from Cleveland could yeah. miss the spelling of their sports team. But uh, it was a seven-game series, and it went seven, so the, the intensity was elsewhere. Did you kind of start to learn games in and out then, and uh, realize what makes a good game and uh, what what aspects were required for a game? That was very educational for me because, like, to your point, like the we would give bug feedback and then you see mm. how they fix the bugs so you start to understand how they're they're creating the games and then but the thing is like we would give sometimes we'd ask for creative feedback mm. and then the answers you'd get from either the designers or the engineers would form help form an opinion about why they make those decisions yeah because uh, it's important to understand what a game isn't as much yeah. as it, what, it, what it is and it's design and it's core systems and i think when you start as a, as a tester, you're like, oh, I want, I, want, I want Sonic to fly and all this stuff. And then when somebody starts to say, here's the brand and here's why we don't do that technologically in the system and here's why the design doesn't want to do that, you start to find their swim lanes. You fight to understand why decisions are made, both in, in time, quality, and budget. But all decisions have a purpose. I never really found there or at EA that decisions were made just ad hoc. Everything had a grounded effect on what the core pillars of the experience brand license or game is. And I think that's what you learn in QA. Yeah. Uh, you learn the games are always broken, but you also learn like the decision-making and what they fix, how they fix it and why they fix it is very interesting. Did any of your input kind of actually get taken up on a game? And uh, did you, did you manage to get any changes made? I think um, there was the 32 X game, obviously a very popular system. <laughs> the uh fred couples uh 36 greatest holes of golf i think it was and we we did give feedback on the swing meter and and how it would work uh with the controller and they they did um they did put that into the game if i remember and there was also like if you remember the the genesis days there was a multi-tap that turned it <laughs> so four players could play at once but it never really worked correctly. we did a lot of feedback on some of their sports games uh, about how the multi-tackle would work and how, the, how that would connect. And I think they took a little bit of that feedback, but most of it was my first creative, like, oh, a win was, the I think, the swing meter in uh, Fred Couples. And it was like three or four of us that really worked hard and like, this isn't working as a golf game. Mm. Uh, maybe they should try this. And they actually did listen. So um, you mentioned briefly there about electronic arts. You moved to EA in 95 and you became an assistant producer. What's the story there? Was that kind of like you said, you know, working in the QA team there, you actually started to learn a lot about like decisions, what were made in the game and what goes into a game and stuff. Did, was that the reason that you wanted to go into that kind of role or did once again, did it just kind of happen? I would say like, so here's what, like I'm a big sports gamer and I, you you, you start to learn after a period of time that the games you love to play aren't necessarily the ones you should be making. Mm -hmm. But um, I was a big sports guy all the way through uh, gaming stuff. So like, when an opportunity opened up, uh, a coworker of mine moved over to EA and he says, hey, there's an yeah. opening over there. I, I jumped at it. And, and the reason I was debating back and forth was staying in QA full time because I got the offer or going there and, and doing a world that I didn't quite understand. But the one of the, one of our good coworkers did not get 
the full-time position and he had just got married and had a kid and needed it. So one of the reasons I went over was I had a full-time job in what I thought was a dream job, but also provided him a chance to get a full-time job and not be mm. uh, out of the street. And I, I say that like I, I think I sound good when I say that, but I, I you know, I was always going to take the EA job. I'll just take credit for him <laughs> staying in. Now that I say it out loud, I sound, it sounds horrible. <laughs> no, it, it was a really sweet story. And then you did kind of say that part, but either way, you both ended up in a good position, which was, uh, which was great. So I don't think he ever thanked me. So you know what? <laughs> Brilliant. And what was the culture like at EA? Was it, cause obviously EA, lots of sports titles, lots of sporting games and stuff like that. Really, really popular, you know, especially in the mid nineties for sports games and stuff. So were you kind of in your element all of a sudden, you know, or was it a complete different, like, you know, shock to the system kind of thing? It's a bit of a shock to the system and, and why like high score, which is the division that did sports um, mm-hmm. out of San Mateo. Uh, it was really the Delta house of interactive, right? At the time, because <laughs> mm-hmm. this is, you know, Scott Orr was a, was a major influence on me and a major Mount Rushmore of sports gaming. And he ran that division and he was an incredible mentor and like, he, but he, he had a very loose culture, right? Which was like, you know, let's talk about it. Let's, let's, let's find out what's best for the game. Let's get mm-hmm. the license. And so like, it was, you know, when you come from a regimented, like, here's a test plan, here's what you're testing, and here's what you're checking the box, to what makes the best game uh, was the right thing for him to do. But, like, coming into that was was relatively new experience. So, like, like, what am I basing my decision on? You know, you're, you're basing your decision on what you think is best for the game with, with, as a mm. team. And so it was very, went from very regimented to very little Wild West a bit. But he yeah. and, and that team and the way that it was run, uh, there's a great support system. Uh, and it was a great, it ended up being a great culture, I think where sports kind of suffered is like when, when they became very corporate through success, Mm. um, that old West style of making games of everybody just doing their jobs and it it being run by, uh, Scott, his vision, I think just got squeezed a bit. Did you, um, work much with Andrew Anthony and, uh, uh, the, the kind of voicing his motto, it's in the game. Did you, uh, uh, get to meet him at all and, uh, kind of be around that period? I only met him once. Uh, I did work with him. I just like, you know, whenever we had, you know, whether it was Andretti Racing, which became NASCAR or Knockout Kings or any of the Maddens, except for the year it didn't ship and hockey, except for the year it didn't ship. He's always around for the commercials or, or, or the thing. But like, he was funny because he's such an icon in sports of that era. And like the, gen- the generation that grew up with sporting games back in the 90s and 2000s know him so well. But like my son, who he really enjoys EA sports games for the most part. I bring him up as like, that's a guy that's in the game, right? You smile. He's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. So, so I was like, well, he's a big deal back then. Yeah. How how did you get involved with Overblood then? And uh, what, what was that like? So Overblood, that was a great experience. Because like, so basically, I think it's out there. So like the year Madden didn't ship, that creates a, it creates a vacuum of revenue. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the division was looking for options that they could... Uh, do quality games that Phil Holden. That game was doing well in Japan. And I, I don't remember who brought it over, but Michael Pohl presented it to us, who was our boss at the time, and said, this is a, this is a game that we could bring to this market. Um, a, that, that, that fills a need that we have, but also is a really cool stepping stone for maybe high score doing other other types of games. Mm. You know, because he at the time had the Janes division, which did simulators, and it had underneath that division, the, you know, the jungle strikes and then the road rashes of those that group. And then you kind of had sports. And then uh, Maxis with the Sims, but like, so he brought it over and that was really interesting. Cause like we recast it with American actors. We tried mm. to, we hired some writers to try to Americanize the, the, the script, but like it was so new for our division to make kind of an adventure puzzle game. And I think if I remember correctly, uh, resident evil, not to compare it to resident evil and 
uh, but had just come out. So that kind yeah. of like spooky survival horror kind of third person was 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 popular. So I think um, it was a very interesting experience because that was my first experience learning localization and, and what that yeah. entailed and how you have to match each of the voice files. That was in my mm-hmm. early 20s to the exact length of the voice file that, that was currently there or it kind of screws up the system. But it was um, mm-hmm. it was definitely a fun experience because it was something completely new that I had never done or or, or, or seen. Was there a lot of pressure for it to be you know, as successful as say Resident Evil, because obviously they're not massively similar games, but you know, they, at the end of the day, they're both survival horrors. And also, as you mentioned, to kind of fill that, fill that void of there's no Madden this year. So how did that feel? I think that, yeah, there, there's pressure on getting it done. I don't, mm. I don't, I think everybody had realistic expectations. Uh, I think both Scott and Michael kind of knew there was never going to be a Resident Evil. Cause that was obviously like a, a watershed game that became its own yeah. urban games. Right. But yeah. I think, the pressure on getting it done at a high enough level where it would make a dent and people would care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and care is subjective to care about the characters, care about the story, the gameplay, whatever what it was. But when we completed it, we felt like we did justice to the game that, that mm-hmm. the core game because we didn't change much of the game outside some yeah. cultural stuff. And we Americanized it a bit. And I think it fit exactly what the port was coming over from Japan. And I think um, it hit its mark. But I think the expectations were definitely tempered. There was never going to be Resident Evil. So you also helped produce Fi-Fi and Extreme Pimple for EA. Um, what was the experience like there? What were you doing there? Were you localizing the games or were you more involved with those ones? Those also were like um, kind of value propositions that were brought to us mm. through Michael Pohl. And I, I remember, you know, the, the pinball was Epic Games, which I, I, I think they went on to great success. <laughs> so like, um, and Mark Rain and those teams. And th- those were fun because we took that game. My job was to take it and put it on the PlayStation which was unique for that um, and then the scrolling camera and how that would work. So trying to get that to fit on a PlayStation and then be readable and playable when the screen's scrolling with the ball, which, you know, in pinball, you kind of like your hands are on the pedals ready, ready to flip those back up. And then sometimes the screen was rotating and be off, but that was a fun and happy Keller was the producer of that he, he did a mm-hmm. really good job because he kind of, he's a big pinball guy. So he understood that the fire, the firefight was like, it was, it was a very interesting opportunity because of like, I loved that game mm. because of the multiplayer aspect is a little bit like worms. And the fact that you can like take on somebody individually in a large scale, but like it's just pieces of the puzzle as you're playing it. Um, and it had some great effects on there and it had some great parallaxing and it looked great. Um, and, and that marketing for that game, I thought was unique because it was a multiplayer mm. and I didn't think that marketing would push the agenda of that. So they put two discs in the box. Yeah. I was going to say that that's really weird. Like having two discs. So it kind of be like, you, you'd get a friend involved and right <laughs> kind, of, kind of get them on board and it was network and modem play as well wasn't it it, it was it is correct it, it, we thought you know on the on the first part you're like oh this is really cool because you can say i have a friend and i'm gonna hand them a disc but then we were like what if the person says no how like off-putting is that <laughs> like, would you like to play a game with me like, here's it free like ah, i'm gonna pass <laughs> we, we felt strongly that that game would be well, more well received than than it was, but I think because of the two discs, the box, and the way the time that in which it came out, because I think Command and Conquer was out at the same time, and kind of changing the genre of multiplayer mm. in the RTS. Mm. I, I think um, it never quite found the audience. You were credited to writing the story with Firefight. How how involved with that were you? It, it was a team effort, but like I'm a big narrative person, and you'll see in my career as we go on. Like I do a lot of like uh, writing, and like I think it needed one and the developer didn't have one. So whether, you know, I said like, I'd take a shot at it. I wrote it and a lot of people gave feedback on it, but it, it was a fun experience because like, you know, coming up, like you already had the mechanics, you already had the code, you already had the game, but coming up with a conceit and characters and a purpose 
uh, was very unique to me and a very, a very big challenge. And I, you know, the support system in EA helps with that because there's lots of people that do that very well. EA, like especially the Jungle Strike series, had a great storyline. They're usually comical, but like it was fun. But it was a challenge to say, okay, like why am I here? What am I doing as a not as a player, but like as a character within the universe? And what is the universe's definitions? And back then, they didn't define it as much as we do now. But like it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of like I remember. Somebody says, "Oh, you wanted to be, you're kind of a writer. Would you like to write the story for the game?" And I was like, "Yeah." And as soon as they left, I was like, "What the hell <laughs> what am I going to do here?" I have a blank piece of paper with an icon, like just blinking on a blank piece of paper, like once upon a time. So, but it was um, it was fun, but it was definitely a shallow end of the pool kind of story. Well, uh, talking of pool, <laughs> you, you worked on a title, uh, Virtual Pool, and uh, you also worked on Virtual Deep Sea Fishing. What what was it kind of like? Um, becoming a producer then and and doing that full role and also like there was a lot of pool and kind of pinball games that ended up getting onto the consoles and stuff uh, do you think that was a trend that, that that quickly disappeared i do i think uh because i think uh short session games like pinball well there's zen does very well today right they do a very good job with the pinball stuff and i think there's mm-hmm. always a market for that because i think people who are intimidated by large games and you know the accessibility of physical pinball machines isn't there so a lot of yeah, people yeah. like the bells and whistles and gameplay that I think, but yeah, it's um, now that you put it that way, I did a lot of like weird stuff, but like the virtual deep sea fishing was like funny. Cause I remember somebody had an idea, like there was a, a bill that like, we should do a virtual deep sea fishing game. I just remember the dead silence in the room. <laughs> like what the F who would ever play a deep sea, like a virtual deep sea fishing game. And like, so we did it and like, you know, the first time you catch a Marlin, you're like, this is really fun. Like, and then the yeah. four hours goes by before you catch another Marlin, you're like, that isn't very fun. But like, it was, I think it sold like somewhere between like 500 to 700,000 copies. And we were like, I just remember going to my review that you'll be like, yeah, I, I, it was my idea. Like I want to do deep sea <laughs> fishing. Like, this is like, like you're welcome. <laughs> and like, like, it's completely changing the narrative of the green light meeting and like virtual pool. I did virtual pool 64 for interplay mm. and that studio had already been a master class at making pool games on the uh, you know on other systems and so they were trying to put it on that was a nintendo and the n64 was taking off and they were, they were trying to put it on there so that was a hard thing to try to get all their physics and all the way they do the bumpers all the way down you know even snooker mm. like to get that on, on that cart uh was a feat but i would say that the heavy lifting was done by uh, the developer that when i just kind of guided them through like clearing but I, I felt like my job as a producer in that game was to clear the field in front of them because they already knew what they're, they're already masterclass at that genre. Yeah. Like, what would I add? Like, Oh, could you add a more shimmy to the ball? Like, like there's nothing <laughs> I can add without looking like an idiot, but like the hardest jump in games is associate producer to producer. In my opinion, I was talking yeah. to a couple of coworkers about that. It, it is like, as an associate producer, you're like, I'm the most important person in the game. God damn it. It doesn't ship. And you're one of 30 or one of 10 mm. depending on the game or one of two. But when you were the producer, they're like, okay, now it's you make all, you kind of make a lot of decisions on the day to day, and like you have half the budget of most games and no resources other than the APs who think they're God, and mm. like go make the game. And it's just like you know, and Interplay's culture is very, very unique in the fact that they're kind of just like, okay, uh, here's your here's virtual pool, here's this game, here's this game. I'm gonna close the door on the way out. You have fun. Mm. There really wasn't but- the support system the EA had with the infrastructure. As, as a producer, would would you, would you kind of have a lot of responsibility on your head, and then have to go to you know the big meetings and like justify decisions and stuff? As a producer, absolutely. You have you like you know, EA had a thing called Orstaff, 
uh, which, you know, I, I, gratefully, I did not have to attend as a producer. But that, that was a kind of a closed door meeting with just the team and Scott Orr sitting at the end of the table. It was like, you show your game and you, everybody can criticize it. But, you know, you couldn't talk about it outside the room because we were a team. Mm. And it was really um, the funny thing, the peer pressure of like Madden's doing 3D flags for the college football game. My game only has sprites. Oh, my God, we're going to get hammered. How do we do 3D flags? The amount of pressure you put on yourself to make the games mm. better because you didn't want to go in there and be embarrassed by your peers made those games great. Yeah, and, and I, I guess uh, trying to get people to understand as well and stuff, especially when you've got your your kind of neck on the line, it's <laughs> yeah, uh, it must be a task. It is. I, you know, my my wife and my father in law and everybody. I, oh, what does a producer do? And I always say it's like half cheerleader, half warden, one hundred percent evangelist. <laughs> like, I like that. You have to. You have, all three of those, like you said, when you go to the big meetings, you, you're going to be one of one of those three people, and it's just mm. like you have to support the game no matter what it's going through as an evangelist. Yeah. But it's being a producer, you have to be a chameleon because every person you have to have a, a connection to every person on the team. And then some people might like this board or this TV show. And you kind of have to like connect with them on those levels and discuss that where they feel like you're listening to them and you are listening to them, but you mm. kind of know what they're, what they like and, and you kind of like it too. And, you know, I'll talk about dancing with the stars in one cube and then walk across the way and then talk about that. Yeah, did you see the hockey game last night? It was awesome. Like, yeah. You have to be that person because once you lose a team, you lose it forever. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm obviously not a producer, but uh, in my my nine to five, if you will, I'm actually a manager at an insurance firm, and I completely agree with that. You know, you talk to one individual, and like you say, it's how are the kids, how how's this, and then you go and talk to the young guy, and it's oh, you know, how was your weekend? Did you did you drink? Did you know what I mean? You've kind of got to like keep the team going. You know, you know, you've always got to. I know it sounds silly, but I can imagine as a producer, there's just so much pressure to, to kind of do that all the time. So you kind of, you touched on the, the culture interplay there, you know, how it was kind of like, you know, shut the door, go do your thing. Um, did you struggle with that or did you just get on with it? Because your stint at interplay was only for a couple of years, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I, so a couple of things about interplay for me that, that kind of galvanized my career is I think it's the the biggest failure I had at the beginning because I came from a, such a structured support system ADA. Mm. And I think I struggled. I think I had like five or six games. And I did struggle quite a bit, but um, I think all of them, but one shipped on time. But I did, I would say I learned a lot through failure on that one because I just didn't know what I didn't know when I, I got in. But what I did learn near the end was how to gorilla produce, like how to, how to trade with another producer for, for assets of, or people that I need an engineer versus artist, and, and, and get favors like that and ask people to try to follow you <laughs> into hell, right. For a heavenly cause to make mm. the game. And, um, I learned a lot about that. And that, that, that to me is like, you know, producing is about doing whatever it takes to get it done. Yeah. Um, and I think I failed for a while at interplay, but I really learned how to leave the EA support system behind and really learn how to actually just produce the game. And you're responsible for it. I always tell people like, Producer's job is to solve an unsolvable problem every day. And then the executive producer's job is he looks at a Rubik's Cube with a sticker missing. It's literally unsolvable every day. And then you solve mm. it. You go home and congratulate yourself. You wake up the next day and there's even more problems. Like making games is a contact sport. Um, and I think Interplay and I, as I learned to be a better producer, I think, but I had, I had such a rough start there. I don't think we were ever going to mesh. So is that why you moved to Fox Interactive? Because you moved there in the early 2000s, didn't you? I did. Uh, and then mm. opportunity... So Fox was getting into sports when I, mm -hmm. when I went there and I think the interplay was a great, there's a lot of great people there, right? Obviously Blizzard spot off on that and Warheim and Pardo and those guys and, 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 the, and 
you know, Fargo and those guys are all great guys. I just don't think I was ever going to mesh there with my personality and the where I, you know, the impressions of when I got there versus when I left. I was a different person, but I don't think either of us saw that. But Fox wanted to do sports and they knew that I came from EA. So they hired me to do sports. And so that's how I got the job at uh, Fox. Oh, okay. So with, with Fox, was it kind of scary? Because obviously I didn't realize you went into doing the, the sports games initially, but obviously you ended up on working on really huge IPs like the Simpsons and the future armor and stuff. So, you know, I, my next question was going to be, was that, was that a scary thought process? But I'm guessing you kind of went into sports games, which you were quite comfortable with initially. I was quite, it was a very awkward first day, first day. Cause uh, the, I remember my boss was leading mm. me around and, and he gets to do his, he introduces me to the producer. I'll leave nameless cause it's not fair to them. But like, he's like, John will be working on golf and football. And the guy, the producer's like, but I'm the producer of golf. And the, my manager's like, exactly. And I was like, <laughs> this is a really awkward moment. Cause yeah, he just, told, but yeah, it was uh, so quickly. I think uh, Gremlin was making a soccer game for them. And I think radical, which is obviously a very good developer was making our basketball and hockey game. Mm. Um, and both doing very well. Like, I think I don't, I wasn't on basketball, but I was on hockey and the hockey, mm. you know, we were getting there and it was a really good team. And obviously Cam Weber was running that team who, you know, now runs Tiburon, but like that Fox quickly learned that they were, what a lot of people have learned over the years in interactive entertainment is they're not going to be able to compete with EA. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the cost of entry just for the licenses alone between the players association and, and the leagues is a big pill. Mm. And you know, I, Fox I, I got was... into it thinking Fox Sports was going to support that as a backbone, right? As they're, it's in the game as Fox Sports because they did the local, you know, sports channels purchase. Yeah. But they were never going to be able to compete with the ages. A, I don't think movie studios in general um, invest in games like they should, obviously. Yeah. Um, and they were never going to pay the price to that. So basically it kind of fell apart. And I'm a fairly sarcastic person. So like my, my boss was like, hey, you know what? Like we've, we have a license, Michael Pohl, actually, who I worked with the EA, joined. And he's like, we have this amazing IP called The Simpsons. And yeah. there's a Bart versus the world on the NES, I think. Yeah. So like, I think there was a bowling one as well. It's just bad, 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 bad. He says, how do we make it great? So like, I took that as a challenge because, you know, Simpsons were relatively in its heyday back then, right? Colin yeah. Ryan had just left, but it's like, it's a right when it was hitting its wheelhouse. And like, so we went to Radical and said, because we liked them as a developer, what do you have as far as an engine? They had a driving engine because they had done a driving game before. Mm. And we talked about like kart racing, right? And so I went to Matt Granning and, and Gracie Films and neither of them were interested in a kart racing game because I think at that point, everything had a kart racing game. And, 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 and Matt said to me, he's like, listen, like for my humor to work at its best and, and through sarcasm and, and you know, objective humor, I need two people talking, right? Mm. It's back and forth. It's not like uh, observational, like I'll make a joke about a rock. Yeah. but most of it back then was the dialogue between the characters and the gap between expectation and result of the line so like we went back to radical and then we came up with like okay you know a delivery system right which was initially going to be a tow truck this and it's just like i wanted like i'm avoiding the topic of crazy taxi but like it just it was going to always be that yeah that was one of our questions <laughs> you're answering it for us already <laughs> which, like there was discussions about like what a tow truck driver or bus driver like we just tried to like at the end of the day, Simpsons about parody, right? Yeah. And like making fun of things that are pop culture. And I think, you know, at that point, Crazy Taxi was popular, but it had run its course, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, we made the decision, like, we're going to make a delivery game. And it was never, like, 
we set out to copy Crazy Taxi. We're just going to mm. we're going to make a delivery game, which is the humor is between the characters talking. Because Crazy yeah. Taxi didn't have that. But also, I I felt that, like you said, there were a lot of Simpsons titles before there, like uh, Virtual Springfield and stuff like that. I felt the Simpsons was kind of a bit like the South Park games, where they hadn't really, you know, fully fully gone for them yet. And then uh, it with Road Rage and stuff, it it kind of it found its home and it found its its style. You know, they tried so many different ones. I do remember in the early days as well, they used to have some. Quite good um, side-scrolling platformers as well, uh, like Bart versus the Space Mutants and stuff. Did you look back at some of these older titles at all? We looked at the Konami game, the arcade game, because it was very popular, right? Like yeah. Turtles. And we, there's a cartoon maker, right? It was very popular. Yeah. yeah. And the Virtual Springfield was also popular for, the, for its time because it was accurate. But I think when it came down to it, I think the difference was... We got Gracie, which brings us the writers, uh, and we got Matt to be involved. Rather than approve objects and lines and mechanics, they got involved in the making of the game, and they, they were involved with, like, you know, what's the story? And the writers took over and wrote the lines of dialogue. And, you know, we would write placeholder ones, and they would either approve them or punch them up. Uh, they came up with the seat, but Matt would re- review the builds and have his kids play them, and Gracie was far more integrated in this process. So I think like Ghostbusters, but like you add the DNA of the people who are creating the universe and they're not just mm. approving somebody else renting the universe. It, it, it made a big difference. And, and granted, they could be very difficult to work with at times because they're really good at what they do and they're geniuses in the universe in which they create, right? But they, because they live in that universe. Yeah. And yeah. we're just borrowing it for a period of time. So, but I think the big jump in those games to try to answer your question is like the people who created The Simpsons were helping create this game. And before that, they were approving things that were shown to them. Do, do you think that the technology as well, like, you know, going onto the PlayStation 2 and on, on the GameCube really helped with the ability to kind of tell the story and, you know, the uh, CG graphics that were in there and using the actual, like, Simpsons assets and stuff like that? I think so. I think that helped a lot. I think it created lots of problems because Road Rage was in competition and and uh, with a game called Simpsons Skateboarding that was, was being made mm. at the same time and my goal in life was to beat that game and quality and everything. Like it was like, <laughs> I could not be less of a team player to try to make that work. But I do think that we, the, the biggest debate was because we, you're right. We went, we went that way. What does Homer look like in 3d? It was, it was, it was a huge debate with the, with both Gracie and Matt, these characters are going to be 3d. And then, you know, Lisa shown from certain angles. And if you make her in 3d, your back of her head looks like a mace. And so we went through a lot, lots of feedback about, and granted, when you know back then, you're like, "Oh, these look amazing in 3D." But you look back now, it's like PS1. You're like, "Oof!" But like, <laughs> there was a lot of debate and development that Radical had to help with and try to create these characters in 3D uh, mm-hmm. for for Gracie to and, and Matt to approve them. Just kind of touching on like approvals and you know restrictions and stuff like that. Like it was, re- it it sounds amazing. You know that like Matt and Gracie were like really hands on. I didn't realize how hands on they were. But was there any sort of like restrictions or guidelines you had with the characters you know was there any any instances of like fox kind of you know putting their foot in the way and saying actually you can't do that or you know was it was it pretty free sailing if you will it was uh, uh, i think it was, uh, it's never free sailing of the simpsons writers because they can be yeah. very out there and they're very like uh lawyers of fox like you're not saying that yeah <laughs> um which came which came up a lot that the writers are like what so yeah like, um but you you have a little bit of that but i think once we had the construction of the pillars of the game that, you know, the, the characters match the vehicles, the vehicles match the characters. We knew which characters would be delivered by what character. And we had all the lines kind of set up and we kind of had 
a quasi map uh, of Springfield of where they would be going and seeing. I, I think that, you know, Radical was given free reign to make the best game possible. Um, mm. But the story, the lines, the timing of the lines were always going to be controlled by Fox. Yeah. Uh, and specifically Fox underneath that is Gracie and, and Matt were always present, always present. And the, and the map was great as well because it, it introduced like a, a feature that we have in hit and run as well, which is just great little shortcuts and kind of back alleys and, uh, you know, being able to explore the map in a different way. Was it a kind of accurate representation of Springfield or was it more designed for the, for the gameplay, this one? I think Road Rage was, was a representation of Springfield as we saw it on that day because I think the show moves things around for shots, right? I think mm. I, I don't think a map, a detailed map at that point had really existed because um, things had moved around. But like we felt on hit run, we hit it. We got it right in spacing. I felt mm. like Road Rage is a bit landmarkish, right? Yeah. You, you, you had these buildings under this cone of lights in which you're delivering and wall falls up in between them had to be scaled a little different because you're going back to them at high speed so they could, they could read. But you're never going to stop at them. So there's a little bit less care in, involved in those. So you got to obviously work with Matt and Gracie and, you know, a lot of the writers of the show and stuff like that. Did you get to work with the voice actors at all? Yes, I was. We were at every voiceover session. Oh, brilliant. Um, thankfully, they hired a director that directs them on a daily basis brilliant. to direct them because they yeah. could be, they're very good at what they do and they're very opinionated in how they do it. Um, but we were there to say, oh, we need a little bit more energy here. Oh, no, he's talking co- contextual here. Um, those were some of the best days, I think, on those games. And I think you end up laughing hysterically and I, we got everything we wanted, whatever we needed it. Um, they're, they could be very difficult because they're very, um, in demand at the time because the show was, mm. you know, and like, it was at know, its peak, wasn't it? You know, it's, it's yeah, it's, yeah. you know, you talk about Harry Shearer is a comedic genius. And like you mm. say, you say to him like, Oh, I have 10 lines in this, this 30 minute show. And you say, okay, here's 720 lines. And you're like, you know, Hey, Gazaria was amazing. Cause on hit and run, not to jump in, he did, all the cinematics where his characters talk to each other in real time. Oh, wow. Because he, he voices so many right. things with Hankies. He voices like hundreds of the, of the side characters, doesn't he? Yeah. So. He, and this is not a lot. He, did not, he looked at his script maybe three times. and he had set, I remember this too. That he had 812 lines. He was just so good. We did it at uh, Howard Schwartz in New York, and he came in, and he nailed it. And then mm. you know, right, at, right after that, we did Marge. But like, yeah, it was it was just like when you're hearing, seeing these characters in life acted out in front of you, and they're asking questions like, "Does this fit the timing and tone of what you're trying to do?" It's just like, "What you're asking me?" Like, <laughs> uh, it's hard not to be a fan person, but you know, you're you're represented at Fox, and you had a little bit of backbone because Fox was putting on the show. Yeah. So we got, but the, it was it was always fun to deal with the the cast uh, because they're just so talented. So, w- what did you guys want to improve when you did um, Hit and Run and? Uh, were they more receptive to it once they'd realized that, you know, Road Rage had been a huge uh, success? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the crazy taxi comparisons when it hit the marketplace were absolutely valid. But I think um, it's one thing where Gracie and Matt were like, well, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to just be a Me Too thing. The big debate between the two was uh, Radical came to us and said, we want to get out of the car and walk around. Yeah. Yeah, And that was a big debate with Fox executives on the interactive side of like, what does that mean? You know, there are rules to that. You know, we, we did a demo of getting out of the car in front of Homer's house from Road Rage before we redid the engine. And like, we had kicking in there because they wanted a jump. The jump also had like a kick to it. 
And I remember like the first thing Matt did is he just kicked Marge as Homer. <laughs> and he kicked her all the way down the street. And he looked at us like, we're never doing that in the game. These, these, this is not about abuse. I'm fairly certain that's the first thing I did when I played <laughs> Hit and Run was just kick the first person I could find. Exactly, right? We do a good job of trying. You cannot really hit the kids. The kids don't react. Yeah, to the adults. yeah. There's no child abuse. But yeah, everybody, uh, it's funny, poor Marge. Everybody tries to kick Marge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, getting out of the car was the big part of that. And then once everybody saw the potential of this, and, and, and then we started to build Springfield with more gameplay per square feet in mind, like the motel mm-hmm. way off the distance with, with Lisa, and, and make the map. It's still kind of like, it's not an open world. It's kind of a track hidden by buildings and objects and hills. But Hit Run 2 would have been what everybody wanted. But I felt like, you know, Matt told us, this is the game. We got it right. He still, to this day, refers to that as probably the best Simpsons game. And Gracie was very happy with it. So I think, like, at the end of the day, it sold very well. So, like, you know, the funny thing about that game is, like, you know, Fox Interactive was getting out of games. So they sold us to the Vindy, the entire group. So during the middle of that game, I think we were at Alpha. I left Fox on a Friday and showed up at Vendy on a Monday and just continued to produce the game. It was very odd. And that's interesting because when I was doing the research last night and I couldn't figure out what happened because you worked at Fox then and suddenly it was a Vindy. And I was like, well, why did he do Road Rage with Fox and (laughs) hit and run with them? So there we go. Now I know. Brilliant. Yeah, it's um, they sold like, I think Buffy went over. Yeah, Buffy went over for a few times though. The funny thing is, is like Simpsons generated hundreds of millions of dollars hit and run did. And Fox presented Vivendi with, uh, I think I can say this now because I'm so bitter about it still. Why we were doing pre we were doing pre-production on two follow-ups. We were doing pre-production on Hit and Run 2, which had all the air vehicles from the show. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we were doing a, uh, remember Stormfront Studios who did the Lord of the Rings for EA? Yeah. Ray Gresco was the lead designer there. And, you know, he's moved on to, you know, you know Diablo fame and Blizzard yeah. fame. He designed for us a medieval Simpsons game based on the Lord of the Rings engine. And we were doing those two games. Then Fox says, okay, it's a five game deal for $25 million. And Vivendi said, no. Okay. Oh, did did much happen uh, with that medieval uh, one? We have a a video on VHS. I think it's in my garage. It's awesome. Like (laughs) we showed it to to Matt and he actually slapped the table and he was clapping because it's it's a game that he always wanted because it's Simpsons, but it's not like what you think a cookie cutter Simpsons Mm. game should be. And Stormfront, oh, we had awesome. a huge dragon that Hank Azaria was voicing. Homer had like the Braveheart paint and the big club, and and and, and Bart was running around with a, with a, with an archery. Like, I think in, in the video, I think uh, Flanders heads on a pike. You're gonna have to, you're, <laughs> you're gonna have to put that on YouTube. I mean, if you're allowed to. <laughs> and we had uh, so Mr. Burns was a vampire um, that came alive off a stained glass window in a, in a like it was like awesome. And we have a bunch of concept art. I'll have to put the concept art to you guys, but like. That game and Hit Run 2 were like, this is it. We're, 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 we're kind of verging off into unique territory. We're following up a sequel with a hit game. And then Vivendi's like, mm. yeah, $25 million. I know we made $600 million or whatever they made on Hit Run, but like this $25 <laughs> well, talking, million. Uh, talking of something unique, there was a really odd feature, which I don't think I've seen on a game uh, before, which was the kind of holiday theme. So your internal clock on the game would change and then there'd be a Halloween screen. Oh, yeah. have Homer in the living room, Christmas and Thanksgiving. Where did those ideas come from? Uh, it came from a meeting we had with Radical, myself, and Matt Granning. I think Gracie was there as well. We were talking about like the internal clock on the, how the you know, PlayStation 2 worked. And, and and so like Matt and Matt or somebody asked, what could we do with holidays? And, and Radical is very open and very good about like, 
pushing the limits of this kind of stuff. And I think they had already talked about doing holiday stuff. But then once we learned, once Matt learned, like you could adjust the date on your PS2 mm-hmm. to make it that holiday and play it, we put a lot of time and effort into that. Radical did a really good job. If you, the Halloween one's great. So with Hit and Run, you know, it, I was probably the prime age for it when it came out. I think I was about 14. So I was probably that perfect target audience, you know, somebody who at the time also adored Grand Theft Auto. And by the sounds of things, it doesn't sound like it was it was ever kind of like on paper that it was to be a GTA clone. It sounds like, you know, radical. We want to get him out of the car and it kind of developed from there. So my question was going to be, was the brief for it to be a GTA clone or was that just kind of like it just kind of happened over time and it just felt similar to that kind of game? And, you know, do you think it was as as successful as it was because of games like GTA? I think it was successful because I think people, uh, because of games like GTA, but I think it never really started out as that. We want to get out of the car. If you notice, mm-hmm. there's a lot of collecting and platforming stuff of cars. Yeah, stuff. it is a huge collector fun as well, yeah. Right, but like once we get out of the, like the problem is, is like you can't put the genie back in the bottle with creative people. Once you get out of the mm-hmm. car, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, we can do this, we can do this, and we make a list and you're like, oh, this is never going to happen. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think over time, it, people, people always associate it with GTA and I can see why because it's driving and getting out of the car. Mm. Um, but it, it never, never really intended to be that. It intended to be a driving game that had platforming elements. And you know, you yeah. go into like the Quickie Mart or the, you know, if you know that every doorbell and every everything has a line of dialogue to it, like you, you rattle yeah. the door at the Quickie Mart, and there'll be a line from, from the moment sh- or yeah. it was frozen in there. Yeah, it's um, Jasper. Jasper, right? So yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> so, so the design team at Radical put so much effort into making sure that they touched almost every episode at that time. Mm. Yeah, um, I give them a lot of credit because they. I would see things build that like, okay, we want this, this, and this, and they added like three more because they had time. Um, but yeah, it was really just supposed to be driving and getting out and doing some collecting and platforming and some fan service of ringing a doorbell or going into the quickie mart. You know, mm-hmm. we only did three or four interiors. Um, but over time, I can see why, given the popularity explosion of open world games in GTA, I can see why people mm-hmm. have the connection. And we sure weren't going to deny the connection. We we're going to be like, oh no. You know, it's nothing like the most popular game that's ever existed. <laughs> and, it, and it was like, there was loads of hidden stuff as well. Like I remember the roof of the Quickie Mart and stuff. Oh yeah. Behind, <laughs> yeah, the, it, uh, it, behind it, their house, inside yeah. the, um, uh, the nuclear power plant, there's a bunch. The funny story about when we were at the end and, and is, you know, we always were about map holes right back then. Mm. And like, there's a motel and, and if you go there, you stop and you ring the doorbell. I think, uh, Somebody said something like Principal Skinner, but like across the way with just Lisa, you could fall through the guardrail and fall through the map. Mm. And a QA person found it. And I, of course, given my background, I was pissed, but like I had to respect it. Mm. And we had, a, I remember 10 people discussion, like, will Sony find this or Nintendo? And we're like, it's, it has to be Lisa. It has to be this guardrail. It's the fourth one in or whatever. And we're like, you know what? I was like, I was like, let's just let it roll. We're fine. And Greg Goodrich, who was a, one of the executives was helping with the game with it because it's such a large operation. Um, we were like, we got it. And the mm. very first bug report, the very first one, Lisa fell through the map. <laughs> like, I don't know how they found it. They found it day one. Oh, wow. I remember uh, I had a cheat disc for the GameCube and uh, it worked on hit and run and you could go through the boundaries, but it was only as Bart and Lisa. You could only do it as the small characters. And it let you do all kind of crazy things, you know, flying through the sky and kind of that's a kind of semi debug mode. So yeah. uh, it's interesting that people found that. <laughs> yeah, I was just so pissed. Yeah, but I really <laughs> like the fact that if you remember the car damage went all the way down to like dragging the metal carcass yeah. of the car along the road. 
a lot of like I give like rat again, I'll give like a lot of people, it's a team sport to make games. Lots of people do it. Obviously, there's a tip of the iceberg of creativity and then dr- drive and then focus, but like Radical never stopped pushing the elements of what they could do as far as fan service. It was really impressive on, on that game. They went far and above and beyond. Yeah. Absolutely. And as you know, that game, that engine, that game became Scarface. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say you worked on Scarface next, didn't you? I haven't, haven't actually asked any questions about Scarface because I kind of moved to Ghostbusters next because you have worked on so many fantastic, fantastic games. But um, I really wanted to ask where the decision, where the decision for Apu to be the fifth player come from? In, in Hit and Run? Yeah, in Hit and Run, yeah. Not in Scarface, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, but I think that, you know, that comes from, you know, we playability of the car, uh, the locations that they went. We had a little bit of a sign, like a graph to it. But I think at the end of the day, Gracie and Matt make those decisions. Um, yeah. What they feel best. So they helped us define which characters would be playable, which ones wouldn't. And, 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 you know, if we even had a graph that was off of that, you're not going to battle them on that because they kind of mm. know what the fans are because yeah. the show is writing to those fans and there's uniqueness to the show. So I think plus giving, you know, take areas like great voiceover work because we used them a lot. Mm. Um, I think the decision definitely came from a group between Fox, uh, Gracie, um, cause I left Fox at the time. It was Vendi, uh, and Matt made that decision. Fair enough. And um, do you know much about the hit and run remaster that's kind of been making headlines for the last kind of three or four years? And, you know, often, you know, especially in the UK, it's always winning polls for the next game, you know, that should be remastered and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I think a fan kind of redid it in a in like 4K. Yeah, there's been been loads of like, you know, fan remakes and stuff. But, you know, any any sort of rumblings of an official remake? Have you ever heard of anything going on? with it? I have tried. To remake that game six times. I've been called to, to oh, try wow. to remake that game six times. Where it kind of nets out is I think where Gracie and Matt sit, from what I understand, I haven't heard this first person, but the feedback I've gotten through Fox was that they feel like this would be a money grab. If they were going to do something, they'd like to do something original. They wouldn't, I, mm. I think it's not a money grab. I think it's there's an entire generation of parents that can tell their kids, I played this. This is my favorite yeah. game as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. But they see it more as a commercialization of a hit game. Uh, they'd rather mm. do something original. And I think now that Disney owns it, uh, from what I understand, the last two people that tried, they wanted so much money as a, in an advance to do it. Mm. Um, because it's kind of like, it's weird because like Disney owns the assets, but Activision owns the code because of their verge with Vivendi. Yeah. So mm. it's split and Radical's gone. And Radical was owned mm. by Activision, which even reinforces their ownership of the engine, which became the prototype engine, right? After Scarface. Yeah. So it's just by, it's just split. Like we own the voice files and the assets and we own the code. So who who gets to do it and who gets paid up in advance so everybody want everybody wants a big advance so i think it was like 10 to 20 million dollars in advance between the two parties just to have the conversation and gracie wasn't too supportive of it and and, and so i think it needs to be remade i was very happy when obama got elected because you know, had that change.org website mm. somebody posted a hit and run remake and it got like nine thousand uh likes i'm like why isn't this law no um but it, it comes up a lot like my kids keep sending me stuff that they see on Facebook said, this is my game as a child. And it's just like, I, you know, it needs to be remade. It really, you're not going to get uh, that kind of Simpsons game again. I yeah. don't think that Joe's at a place to do that. And the talent's at a place to do that. And the energy yeah. is not quite around the franchise as it was. The kind of here in the UK, the kind of Holy Trinity of Simpsons games is the trilogy of like, you know, PS2, the PS2 and GameCube ones of, of, um, Road Rage, Hit and Run and the Simpsons game, you know, which came out around this about the times of the film. And, Personally, I do think Hit and Run 
is is the biggest and the best one of those three. And, you know, there's so many news outlets and stuff. We've covered it ourselves so many times on our news segment, you know, when there's murmurs and rumours of, you know, a hit and run remake. So it would be amazing, but I guess it makes sense, you know, that if Matt Groening doesn't want to do it, then it doesn't kind of happen. Yeah, and the, and the and the logistics of where's the code mm. and who owns the assets you got to put them yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. The, but my, my, the Simpsons game was interesting to me because I was like, when we lost the license, and it got it. They made that game. I was like, super overly bitter. Mm. Like, and I shouldn't have been, but I I felt like that game was good. Obviously, yeah, it was good quality. But I felt like it was more of the Simpsons writers making an inside joke about their own games than it was a fan service outward to like this is the Simpsons universe. Enjoy it. I felt like they were making an inside joke about video games. Yeah, I, I the, the Simpsons game, uh, the one after Hit and Run. Yeah, it, it is that it is that kind of satire. Like even to a point where comic book guy is the tutorial, and he's like, "Oh, not another tutorial!" Like it breaks the third wall all the time, doesn't it? So, like you say, it's the writers having fun with it. Yeah, yeah. So I felt like it was a very quality game, but it's very like self referential VA. Um, and but like you know, it's a good game, but like I felt like it was like to your point, it was a different tone. Well, you mentioned Ghostbusters earlier, and uh, yeah, uh, you were executive producer and writer for that. What what was it like? And uh, kind of, you know, you're a big fan of the series. Did that really help? Yeah. So, like, there are like three or four games, that, like licensed games. If I like, I could make anything, I, I would make those games. Obviously, mm-hmm. Ghostbusters and The Simpsons were on that list, right? So, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Back to the Future is the other one. I'll never like that's just too hard to create a game around Back to the Future, but like. It was funny because Hit Run did very well, and Vivendi's like, "Hey, you know, what do you want to do?" Because like, you had success. It was very mm-hmm. interesting, and like, so the, I had three games in pre-production. Um, mm-hmm. I had a, an original game with Storefront uh, called Fairy Tale, which is like a, before Dark Disney it was very Dark Disney, and Ray Gresco was the designer of that. And we had, and that got killed in the Activision merge. Mm-hmm. And we we had a, a original game with Tim Burton in production, which was awesome, which was a dream of mine, right, to work with him at that time. So. Which also got killed in the Activision event emerged. <laughs> they had uh, Ghostbusters, which like I, we went to Sony and they're like, "Listen, it's a dormant license. Uh, it's a good. It's pretty cheap. Uh, our advance for that." And then I, I brought it. I remember bringing it to Greenlight with Pete Wannett was also on it with me. Um, mm-hmm. We also did Scarface together, and he, you know, he's a Riddick fame. But like, I remember marketing me like, "Well, there's no movie. Like typical video game marketing, right? There's nothing we can get a lift from. Nobody cares about it. It's 25 years old." And then. Bruce Hack, who was the CEO of Vivendi at the time, said, hey, I'll give you two weeks and a couple plane tickets. Uh, go Because the way it worked is the actors have to say yes to it for, yeah. the, for the license to, because they have part ownership in the license. I, I think mm. it's not all funny. So like... Yeah, because Dan Aykroyd wrote and he wrote all of Ghostbusters. Like he invented Ghostbusters and stuff. So I guess right. he, has, he has a big share of it, I'm guessing. Right. So we started with him and yeah. like... We met, I remember meeting at House of Blues and I was shaking because it's like, oh my God, it's Dan Aykroyd. And like, Ghostbusters in 84 in the theater, like, affected me. Like, I saw that theater, I was like, what is this? And I could, like, I was obsessed with it. Mm. And um, he, we, we walked him through and he's like, I think, you know, this will help and I maybe I'll do it. And I, what did Harold think? So we went to, the funny thing is we went to Harold second. Yeah. And we, we met with him on the set of The Office because he was directing The Office at the time. All right. Which is its own surreal moment, right? Mm. <laughs> like, hey, here's mm. the office pit, and let's talk about Ghostbusters. Pull out a laptop, right? Yeah. And we what, we, we concentrate on the action and set pieces with Dan, and we concentrate on the narrative story and, co- and comedic elements with Harold, because I felt like that was their wheelhouses. And Harold was like, I think, I think I'm in, because I feel like a generation of fans would really enjoy a continuation of the story. And like, 
then went back to Dan and Dan, Dan and Harold had a conference call with us and they were all in. I remember the panic on Sony because Dan and Harold, like this is Ghostbusters three. This is the continuation of the story. And Sony was like, we're not making a movie, but we're never gonna allow you to call it Ghostbusters three. <laughs> and now of course our marketing team was like, please call it Ghostbusters three. And all the way through production, the code name was Ghostbusters three. So it's kind of funny, but like, yeah. then, you know, er, we went to Ernie and he was involved. Bill was the most difficult because Bill is Bill Murray, right? He's a legend and he's yeah. very busy and he's very like in his own world and he's a genius and he's just very difficult to get. We didn't think we were going to get him. Um, hmm. We divided the plan to try to help. Like the whole goal for me was like, how do I get Bill to see the demo? Because we did a demo, which was very funny. Um, it was also very, you know, the demo talked about the head of finance of Vendy not funding the funding it and the, you know, because everybody in the Greenlight meeting had a line, all the executives were referenced in the, in the demo. Uh, and then, but like Bill, if you don't get Bill, like what's the point? And so yeah. my goal was like, how do I get Bill to see the game because if I ask him, he's going to say no. So what we did is we hired the mayor from the original movie. And then we fired the mayor from the original movie. And right. I came up with the idea of, the, of casting Bill's brother as the mayor. Brian right. Doyle Murray. Yeah, he's also yeah. best friends with Harold, right? Their friendship is really with Harold. And so we we flew Brian Doyle Murray into Vivendi. And we showed him the demo. And he's like, you show the demo for every actor that plays a small bit. You want him to see the game before they see us? And I was like, of course. Like... <laughs> We, we want to shoot, and he says, he literally said at the end of the meeting, he's like, You want me to tell my brother that this is a good game? And we're like, Yes. Yeah. And that was on a Monday afternoon. And I believe on Tuesday, Bill said yes. And I remember and... There was, the only time I've had a, seen a dog pile in a video game company is everybody was jumping in because nobody thought we were going to get him. And when he said yes, it was a, you know, granted, it's very difficult after that to get in the studio, but <laughs> him just saying yes galvanized that game into green light. So, what what happens next? Like, did you have the script wrote? How involved were you in the script? Did Dan Aykroyd work on it at all? Because obviously this game for me, is a legendary game. I, I adore Ghostbusters as well. And to this day, Dan Aykroyd is very, you know, this was, this was part of, this is canon, you know, it's part of, of Ghostbusters, you know, up until Afterlife came out, it was seen as, as you say, it was Ghostbusters 3. You know, people saw it as, this is the continuation of Ghostbusters. So, what happened next? We hired, yeah, we have we we hired a writer that worked with Terminal Reality to write the story, and John Platten was one of the writers, and they wrote a concept, and it was really interesting and good. But Dan at the time was like, "I want to use parts of this, but not all of it." So we, you know, we didn't continue on with them to write the the voiceover, but they helped mm-hmm. kind of with the conceit. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we hired a, a couple of writers too. Like, I wrote with the creative director of Terminal Reality the levels, right? And mm-hmm. like the museum, if you know me, like I'm a big museum person. So that's that's why the museum comes to life. I was a big fan of the Ken Burton Civil War documentary. So that's why that scene's in that game. So we we came up with like with Dan, like what areas would be cool to do in a game? And Dan's like, yes, I approve this. And Harold's like, I approve this. And then we kind of constructed through the game and we wrote placeholder dialogue for that. Then then Harold and Dan took it and uh, they freaked out because it's a side of Lord of the Rings. But like they're used to 120 page script. And they're like, holy cow, we signed up for the X amount of money and this is how big it is. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so, um, but they took it, they rewrote it, they worked with us, we went back and forth. So they really had their stamp on it. Um, mm. They really, really like laid into the, to the lines of dialogue yeah. um, after the casino was decided. So we worked on the script for a while while they were working on the vertical slice. <clears throat> we debated, there was a big discussion during that time period of can you drive the car or not? And we had a demo where the car was kind of on rails and we figured out that terminal reality just didn't have 
the maturity in their systems and engine to do a driving part of the mm. game. So we did mm. cut it. Yeah. Uh, the only thing they got cut to that we wanted is all we had a Macy's Day Parade floats where they all come alive, which is oddly in the 2016 movie, but I don't want to, talk, to say anything. But like, <laughs> so yeah, we did that, and then you know it came down to like the voice recordings, and then and, and could we deliver the voice recordings? And the sad part is that Vivendi was trying to downplay the budget as we were trying to play, mm. but they wanted it to be a value title from the start. So it was it was a literal civil war uh, with lots of casualties, and they're just a fight, fight, fight for this game. And we mm. begged, borrowed, and stole, uh, stole to get where we were. And I think we hit a stride with the game development where we were going to make a ninety rated licensed game, and mm. then the Activision, the Vivendi merged get, and they told the studio to stop working on it at Alpha. Oh gosh. So why it was kind of in limbo when it was for sale, I couldn't work on it legally. And, you know, say four months goes by and Atari picks it up. So they don't get the code for another two months till the deal's done. You can't lose that momentum. Like you mm. can't, teams can't just say, okay, pick up where we were. Cause we were firing in all cylinders. Dan was calling them, rooting them on. We were, we were getting back and forth. We were playing the game, giving notes about timing and comedic stuff. And like, we had start recording the dialogue <clears throat> builds its own little disaster there. But like, but then you, you tell the developer at, between Alpha and Beta, it takes six months off. Try to work on another project because you're not going to get this one. Oh, wait, no, go back and work on it. It just mm. doesn't work. And so it's still rated, you know, I think around an 80, but it could yeah. have been something special because we are on the path to deliver something really good. It just kind of fell apart because of the merge. I, I And, you know, I, I don't think you should downplay it. I It is really a special game. You know, obviously it got a remaster a couple of years ago and it's a highly regarded game. I, I really enjoyed it and a lot of people really enjoy the game. So... You know, my kind of last two questions about it was, what was the experience like working with the cast? Were you involved at all in in the voice acting and the voice casting? Not the voice casting, you know what I'm trying to say. The, uh, yeah. yeah, in the studio, I was, essentially. Um, I, I directed each session. Yeah. Because, like, I helped write the script and, and, and with, with lots of people behind me giving me notes, right? Mm. Um, I bet that was insane. I, I have the, like, my wife calls me fringe, where I'm close to famous, but not famous, because for whatever reason, and I don't know why, and I don't take any credit for it, uh, I get along with, with like, Matt Groening and Gracie and where other people haven't. Yeah. And I got along. So, basically, uh, Dan Aykroyd locked Sony out of it. And he says, I'm only going to deal with John. So, I basically dealt with Harold and Dan on a weekly basis for three years. Oh, wow. Mm. And it was like, like Harold Ramis defined my sense of humor, right? When we recorded him when he was still sick, it was in Chicago. Like mm. the last thing he ever did was his pickup session for Ghostbusters. It's the last thing he ever did. Yeah. And like, it was really emotional just to get the game done because we were also super fans of it. But like the voice of sessions were awesome. Like the funny thing about Dan is like, he would trigger on some lines that were just like tongue twisters, but he would not let you rewrite them. He was going to get it no matter what. And he yeah. was very like, the way Ghostbusters is written is like, it's Christmas morning and every, every, every scene and like Harold and Dan's characters are the kids. Like, this is great. You know, the, the, mm. the way, um, the excitement for the president comes from Dan's character and Harold's the more systematic. I got a science set, but the parent really is Bill Murray. If you notice in the, in the, in the way the humor does, he always talks down to them or tells them to be quiet or get, you know, they're weird. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the way it was written. But like when they do the voiceovers, like it, it's amazing. And I remember recording Bill and Bill didn't get to finish all his lines for any number of reasons, but like we were mm. like 700, like 70, 700 lines less than he was should have recorded. Oh, wow. And Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd rewrote the script and came in and recorded their lines to cover off on those elements of the levels for free. Oh, that's fantastic. But this was I, like the third, like it really was the third movie. It took place in 91. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, we, we had a great sequel in mind. It just, again, like Atari was kind of out of business at that point. And, 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 you know, just a story there about Dan and Harold Ramis, you know, coming in and re- rewriting it for free and doing those extra lines and stuff. It, it goes to show how passionate they were for it to be a good product and be seen as, you know, the true successor and stuff like that. It is a really, I guess, romantic kind of story, if you will, you know, it is really nice. And I'm, I'm really glad that it, you know, I know you, you feel slightly differently, but I'm really glad with the way it came out and it was such a fantastic game. Yeah. It's, it's the you know the, the, it's the only time they got back together to be those characters when those characters were still you know like Dan says we're doing ninety one you can make us all skinny again right <laughs> yeah and like they were actually the <laughs> Ghostbusters that we knew and they had this like such they have such a great chemistry between them back then uh, even when we recorded the lines and you know Harold wasn't in the best of health and like it, it was just like the passion that he showed because like the he he is great because he he was so dumbfounded that people have such passion for that like anything he's mm. ever done like he's like you you know it you know every scene you know every intent and he was really like awestruck by that and dan is just a ghostbusters fanatic and loves it and he wants the universe to live like you know he's definitely with ghost corpse brought it back mm. you know tony sony told us when we were at alpha like they were using this as a litmus test to see if they could tell tell toys and t-shirts like if anybody was interested and that just spawned the, you know if you saw all the t-shirts and toys that hit the market after the game came out I got no money from that, but like, <laughs> but it was like, Classic. it was like, you know, and they're great people. Like Dan told my, called my wife at home when I, I sent him a note saying I'm out, the Vendi's done, Atari will take over. And he told her like, he'll be fine. Atari will hire him or I'll pay him to finish it, which is very nice for him to do. And I'm literally driving from LA to Orange County and you know, telling my wife, mm-hmm. like, that's it. My last day he called and said, it's, everything's going to be fine. And Harold called me once a month until like two or three months before his death, just to see how I was doing. Oh wow! Yeah, and they're really great people, and they really cared that you cared. If that makes sense, like, yeah. And they really wanted that to be a great game. And they really wanted to be as authentic as possible because at that time they thought this was it, right? We're not coming back. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's um, of all the games I've done, you know, Simpsons Hit Hit Run was really hard to do, and it re- had a really great outcome. But mm. um, and I'm really proud of it. But emotionally speaking, and and passion speaking, Ghostbusters was like I lived that life for three and a half years. And fighting yeah. a lot of people who said, because there's no movie, we shouldn't be making this game at the Vendy trying to kill it on mm. a monthly basis. Our, our yeah. kind of production, I won't name his name, but like, just literally just like, this game won't work. We should be doing other things. Now, I'm, I'm, oh, John. Uh, oh, sorry. I was just oh. going to say, I'm, I'm really glad it happened. And I'm really glad that, you know, yourself, Howard Ramis and Dan Aykroyd worked so hard on getting it done. You know, it, I, I'm, 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 I'm truly thankful for that. It was a really fantastic that game. That game was officially killed three times at the Vendy. Like, <laughs> a form, like, and the CEO brought it back every time. You know, other than the Tim Burton original game, which I think would have been, like, the, the demo was fantastic. I mm. think, like, Ghostbusters would, would have been a crime. Those are the two games I want to see come on the market, but at least Ghostbusters did because it had a, such a fandom built in. I didn't have to work on a fandom. Yeah. Um, the, it was just like, it was a labor of love for sure. Brilliant. Stuff. Well, John, uh, it's been amazing talking about... Uh, these fantastic projects that you've worked on. And um, I was just wondering, you're still in the industry nowadays. So uh, have you been working on anything you can talk about? I am currently uh, an executive producer at uh, NBC Universal, and I, I control DreamWorks and Jurassic. So lots nice. of stuff happening so, with Jurassic. Is that is in Jurassic <laughs> World, is it? Exciting stuff coming up, yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of great integrations. Obviously, the Frontier game, you mm. know, um, Evolution and Evolution 2 is great. Yeah, the part yeah. A lot of great partners, but I will say there's stuff coming in the future that you guys will love. 
Oh. But yeah, it's a, it's been it's been fun. You know, again, like I get to work with some great people. You know, Amblin and and, and Colin Trevor, all those guys are like, like we talk about. Colin Trevor is deeply involved with these games. He he gives his input. He wants to see him. He wants to be heard. And he's he's made these games great by like like I said, not just approving assets, but like let me help you make the best game possible. Let me clear the path for you. Let me give you my creative feedback. It's it's been invaluable. Well, this well, is thanks been... for coming on. Yeah, yeah, I think I think me and Joe have had a a, a really really interesting interview no this is this has been fantastic i could have gone for another hour um about ghostbusters and you know and it was the tip of the iceberg i know we probably only covered about a quarter of the games that you've worked on there um but you know sometimes we just try to get that narrative and kind of get some of the biggest games you know that you worked on like kind of discussing stuff but no this has been absolutely amazing thank you so much for coming on john oh it's a pleasure like anytime anybody like likes a game that you make that that stands the test of time i'll talk about it all day long like i especially ghostbusters we have a whole episode on the actual details of making ghostbusters because it needs to be a reality show yeah no absolutely i mean our uh our other presenter dan is an absolutely huge ghostbusters fan so maybe that's a ghostbusters special if you're up for it in the future absolutely i bet you probably get dan in there too yeah, no. yeah, his Whoa. dogs, his dogs <laughs> even called Winston. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. He's a, he's a big fan of the game and what it did for him, and he's doing a phenomenal job at Ghost Corps. They brought the, I loved the last movie. Like I thought, yeah, yeah, same. Um, it was really good. It brought it back, and it kind of like opened up uh, old emotional wounds that you have when you, you saw the, the yeah. first yeah. in the theater. It was really yeah. well done. Awesome stuff. That well, would be amazing. Well, fingers crossed was for I supposed a... to have a cameo in that by Harold. Yes, I was. But did oh, I really? Get a cameo in that? No, I did not. Oh, <laughs> I kept waiting by the, like waiting by the staring at the phone, staring at the yeah. phone. No, no call. <laughs> oh, bless you. Well, fingers crossed for a Ghostbusters special with yourself and Dan Aykroyd on the Retro Hour one day. Um, absolutely, we would absolutely we that would be insane. So, but thank you so much for coming on, John. We've really enjoyed this. Great, I had a great time. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.